pride in the field of poverty alleviation. Billions in grants have been poured into anti-poverty organizations. Thousands of young people graduate every year with degrees in social work and human services. Hundreds of pages of poverty legislation have been passed into federal and state law, and thousands of books have been published on the ways and means of alleviating poverty. While consumption poverty, the number of people who cannot afford life's basics, has declined in recent decades, stubborn pockets of poverty still exist around the country. Here's the question. Is there a better way to help those outside the mainstream of American prosperity? My guest today on Hardly Working has spent decades addressing this very question. Mauricio Miller, author of The Alternative, Most of What You Believe About Poverty is Wrong, has dedicated his life to making poverty escapable, not merely tolerable. He's interested in how poor families can build a better life for themselves and their children. Through the Family Independence Initiative, he has been a leading innovator of poverty approaches that help low-income families and communities identify and utilize their own resources, capabilities, and networks to lift themselves out of poverty. Many believe low-income Americans need a hand up or a handout. Miller believes that what they need most is to seize control of their own destinies, relying on the resources that are hidden in plain sight in their own communities. In addition to being an author and social entrepreneur, Mauricio is the son of an immigrant who struggled her entire life to build a future for her family. I'm excited to welcome him today to Hardly Working for a discussion of respectful, strengths-based approaches to expanding opportunity in American society. Mauricio Miller, welcome to Hardly Working. Thank you. It's great to be here with you and to talk to you again, Brent. It's really a terrific honor. I stumbled on your book, The Alternative, through Russ Roberts, the guy at Econ Talk, who didn't, I think he's done a subsequent interview with you. He told me about The Alternative as I was getting started at AEI, where I've been for two years now. It really had a profound impact on my thinking about poverty. I've been working in faith and community based initiatives for 15 years now, maybe longer. And it really helped me to answer some questions that I've always had about why is it that federal anti-poverty programs don't seem to have the impact that we'd like to see. And then I read your book and I thought, huh, well, here's somebody who's been on the other end of those programs administering them and has reached some really interesting conclusions. So why don't you talk about that? Just tell us a little bit about your involvement in federal and just government anti-poverty initiatives and how that led you to the book and then what you say in the book. Well, I think you know a little bit of my background. I I, uh, was raised by a single mom from Mexico, my sister and I moving up here. So we lived in a lot of pretty rough neighborhoods under pretty difficult situations. My mother faced a lot of barriers and, you know, she came to build a better life here. And For some reason, I'm very clear on so many of the things that were happening to us when we were in those neighborhoods and then watching our neighbors and and the community around me. I was lucky enough to end up going and, you know, not lucky. It was my mother put a hell of a lot of effort to get me into college. It turned out to be, we didn't realize, but UC Berkeley, which all of a sudden had me enter an entirely different world than the world I was raised in. And I was watching the contrast between the students at Berkeley and then the kids that I was growing up with. And so I became very keenly aware of a lot of the differences in those two worlds and why they were so different if we were all kind of humans, kind of of the same material. Things with my family were really difficult. 
fighting poverty, not having enough, my mother not having health care, ultimately not wanting to be in the way. And so she basically, she took her life so that it wouldn't drain the family to try to take care of her health. That had a profound impact on me, losing my mother, knowing that my sister's life was pretty screwed up also, and that everything had been sacrificed for me. So I joined at that point what was the War on Poverty. And I joined a nonprofit that was starting. And for 20 years, then, I really was part of the nonprofit sector, trying to do my best under the system that had been developed that really, I realized after probably within a couple months that it had some fundamental flaws to it. Within 10 years, I realized that I wouldn't bring my own family through the systems and programs I had, even though they were considered some of the best in the country. I was seeing families that I had helped. It wasn't that I helped, didn't help people. The system does help people, but it doesn't fundamentally change anything. And so I started realizing that the fundamental flaws within the current system and what you would call the government programs or the nonprofit sector or people that are just wanting to be helpful is that they started with an assumption that families like mine and the ones I grew up with weren't capable or didn't have the capacity to lead their own change, to even make good decisions. And secondly, there was another assumption that somehow or other, we wouldn't work together, help each other, that, that we would claw each other back in if somebody was getting out or whatever. But the sense that community wasn't there. And yet, growing up in these neighborhoods, I knew that that wasn't true. I knew this sense of mutuality and community. You would see it every time somebody got beat up or anytime something really went wrong is that we were really all there for one another. But it, there were just so many crises. So the two basic pieces that the book tries to get at is that the families that I grew up with and around are really capable. They really have so much capacity. They're probably the most resourceful people in the world because they have to live with almost nothing. And secondly, that that sense of community is that we can reinforce that sense of community and people helping one another. And, you know, we'll probably talk about COVID, but what you see in any kind of crisis is that people do come together. And that's what I saw is when my sister would get beat up by her husband, she would go to friend's house or she would come to us. All of us were really there for her. And that for some reason, a lot of the programs and a lot of the interventions tried to pretend that those relationships did not exist and then form um, form those relationships with a social worker or a professional, whatever. And those relationships, those professional relationships can never really replace the more personal relationships. So those were the two basic things. The issue about capacity and the issue of mutuality is really what the book focused on, basically trying to get rid of those two assumptions. And then it can lead to very different solutions. One of the guiding principles of the work that you started with the Family Independence Initiative is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's summarized as stop helping or no helping for the people who work within FII. Why is that such an important idea for you? Well, it depends on, I guess, the definition of helping. I do think that we need to be supportive, which could be called helping. But the issue that I had was that because professionals that have money, connections, and, and control resources that the families need, when they start helping, they are in a much more powerful position and that families like mine and the families I grew up with will often just you know give in to whatever is being suggested by the professional because they need access. 
And that issue of, of, quote, outsiders and professionals helping by taking the lead, then that's what's not helpful. The issue of being supportive, which is like I said, when my sister got beat up, all of a sudden her friends were there, she could sleep in their couch and, and whatever, that is definitely help. But it is really a supportive type of piece. So I think that the help that we have to get around to is to really be able to understand and empathize with the situation of the families, know that they're the ones that are the only experts of their own life and situations, and that they have and can make the best decisions and that their decisions will evolve over time. And those decisions can get better if they know that there is support behind them at some point. And, and you see this with rich kids and stuff that get in trouble and their family and their dad will, you know, basically say, so ultimately, I'll be there for you. No matter what, I'll be there for you. That doesn't happen from the professional social sector. It provides an intervention and it goes away. And that type of thing can never replace the sense of community and mutuality, the, the sense of family, the, the sense of village that you kind of see in the stronger communities. And what I want is to get society to recognize those senses of community, that sense of mutuality exists. It exists today. And in many ways, we get, we in trying to be helpful, get in the way of that and that we can't do that. We have to first say the primary support system has to be family and community. And secondarily, we'll be there for you. You've got a number of really good stories that illustrate this. I wonder if you could tell us one or two of those stories that you think really illustrates this idea of helping communities to kind of surface the resources that are already there. When I read your work, and when I think about what you're saying, I think that there's an element of kind of learned helplessness that gets built up because of these continuous outside interventions. I think I see this in the prisoner reentry work where you've got people who have been intervened with by government programs basically since they were born. You know, it goes from early childhood services to Head Start to Title I programs in schools and on and on and on. And it turns into juvenile justice and then it turns into imprisonment because that's kind of the last available government intervention is we're going to take you out of society and isolate you. And then we put you in a prison where your entire life is regimented. Every aspect of your life is managed by someone else. All of that, to me, adds up to a person who comes back into their communities who's literally almost never had the experience of managing their own life. And we wonder then why that person has such a problem kind of making the adjustment to coming back to their community. So that's just an example, I think, of part of one of the phenomenons that you're pointing to. But like I said, in your book, you've got some amazing examples and stories of people who came looking for one kind of help and ended up getting a different kind of help that actually really made a difference in their lives. And the one I'm thinking of that I've heard you talk about before is a woman who came to FII in Oakland looking for some legal help. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Again, that was probably pretty early on in the project. And what the project FII, the Family Independence Initiative, was set up to do is to actually, it was a learning project to understand what was the capacity of the families to help themselves and what was the sense of mutuality within the community. So if you think of it as a researcher, 
and what you're doing is collecting data because that's what we did. So we collected monthly data. Then what I had told my staff is if somebody calls you and they ask for help, you are not allowed to provide any counseling or whatever because it would screw up the data for us to understand the capacity of the family. What we would get is whatever the reaction is from the families to your advice. And so, no, you're not allowed to give any advice. Okay, so let's see what people do for themselves and and with each other. So that was what my staff was told. And we got a call one day. A woman had been in a car crash. She was one of the participants in, in the project, the research project that we set up. And she, you know, basically said, you know, in the car crash, the bank is after me. The insurance company is after me. Can you refer me to legal aid? Now, that's a fairly easy thing. It's like it's a phone number. But my staff person rightly kind of looked at me because we had it on speakerphone. And, and I said, I shook my head as like, no, because that was sort of a tenor of what we had said. We, we were not going to be there to provide that kind of help. The protocol that we had set up is that instead you ask the person, well, you know, what would you do or do you know anybody? So the way the conversation went is she asked, can you refers to legal aid? And my staff person said, well, I don't know that we can, but basically have you known of anybody in the neighborhood that had, had, had been in a car crash, faced a similar situation and actually had gotten help from an attorney that you could turn to? Because it's very similar to what you and I, what we would do is we go to our network and say, well, what's the best attorney in this kind of situation or whatever, right? And the woman then you know, basically said, no, I don't know anybody who been in this situation. So we said, the next thing was, so do you know anybody that has had to use any attorney that they're happy with that attorney? Because attorneys refer each other into different areas all the time. And she thought, is there anybody in my network that has been using an attorney that they like? And she's over there, well, no, I can't think of anybody. And you can tell, well, first we're asking about capacity and, you know, her personal capacity, then about her network, which again is norm, something we normally, you and me, now that we're in privileged positions, that's something we normally do. So it started getting to, my staff person is like, shit, it's just a phone number. <laughs> and finally we said, Well, you know, maybe we can. And all of a sudden, the woman stops and she says, oh, but I babysit for an attorney. Should I ask her? And we're over there. Well, yes. (laughs) I mean, obviously, we had a business relationship or whatever with an attorney. We would ask that attorney. And we said, yes, you really should do that. So then she's like, oh, okay. So she started kind of figuring this thing out. And then we said, though, And this was actually kind of important for us. And it was somewhat of a lesson. We said, but, you know, there is something that we would that we would suggest is when you actually ask your employer to refer you to an attorney, ask her if you can use her name, because the way people that are privileged do is they actually use each other's name as a referral. Because if that attorney you go to knows that you are being referred to by somebody else in their circle, they will take better care of you. If they think you're just some poor family coming in, you'll be a volunteer charity case. And so we gave her that advice. So that was helpful or supportive. But then we said, then you have an obligation to pay us back for that advice. And I can't say we said it this way, but we basically said, look it. So if anybody else calls us looking for an attorney or that kind of situation, can we refer them to you? And she said, Oh, of course you can. People love being actually the expert in all these kinds of situations. And all of a sudden, that capacity to help and use social networks was internal to the community. It no longer rested on a professional being there. That's the type of thing that really needed to happen. 
Now, I can tell you the, the biggest one for me, though, was probably seven months into the project. And that was the one around the home ownership piece. So we were working with refugees from the war in El Salvador. And there were, I think, about five or six families. I'm starting to lose track. Essentially, we'd asked them, okay, so we wanted to see what they wanted to do while they were here and how they wanted to build their life. And they were concentrating on trying to keep their kids out of trouble so they could do somewhat well in school and take care of their health. But one day, one of the families, Javier and Maria, it's in the book, that they came in and we have group meetings to try to understand what they're doing every month. And my liaison was listening on the group meeting. And all of a sudden, Javier and Maria said, they're going to buy a house. Now, these families, none of them had any savings because whenever they saved anything, they sent it back to El Salvador because they wanted to go back. And so we found out, my liaisons found out that they had gotten involved with a lender, a real estate agent who turned out to also be a broker that promised them he could help them buy this house at the end of the block. And he spoke Spanish. And so they trusted him and they were going down the road to buy this house. And my staff came back and said, look, it, we think he's a predatory lender. We think he's taking advantage of them. Can we mention that to the families? Okay, so I got like a 28-year-old social worker telling me that this family's screwing up. You know, it kind of seemed to me like they're kind of screwing up. And then they explained why they thought this family was making a mistake. And then I'm over there, well, no, we can't kind of do that. And they said, well, can we at least refer them to financial training or somebody? And I'm like, well, no, we can't really do that let it play out. And, and for me, I felt kind of bad. But remember, I'm looking at it, I want to understand capacity and community. So as it goes on, sure enough, the real estate agent makes their money at closing. So he got them to closing, but he had tiered on mortgage insurance and all kinds of other stuff. And because he was broker, he got them the house. But my staff comes back and says, their monthly payments are 60% of their income. There is no way they're going to be able to buy food and keep their kids in school paying that amount. And so they're going to lose the house. And I'm over there. Oh, shit. But, you know, I knew that, you know, people make mistakes. I saw rich people invest in Madoff, you know. So it's like, okay, what can I do? I did feel bad. And then what happened was, we actually kept monitoring the family and then found out that somewhere along the line, like my 28-year-old, had realized they had gotten in over their head, but money was already in. And so they got a refinance clause put into their closing papers. And then they talked to all their neighbors and all the friends that they had borrowed money from in order to buy the house because they didn't have savings. They descended on this house, repainted it, retiled it, re-landscaped it, had a revalued, had the house revalued, then asked me, because I still could speak some Spanish, to sit in on a refinance. They got their mortgage payments down to 40% of their monthly income. And at 40%, with a whole community of people around them, there's no way they're going to lose the house. And I believe they still own that house in here in Oakland. So that was the first lesson. My staff could have stopped them maybe from using and they wouldn't have the house or we could have just let it go and, and see what happens and there'd be no solution because they made such a bad choice. It wasn't made off, but it, you know, it was not a good choice. But somehow they solved it in a solution that my staff could never have suggested. We can't suggest, oh, go talk to your neighbors and, and get the value of that. They had figured that out. So where were they? Okay, well, that was really good. I, I felt better about not advising the family. And then two months later, we track 
everybody's income and savings and whatever. And the red line for savings for all the other four families that were in that grouping, because we enrolled them in groups to see the group dynamic, the red line for savings went up for all the other families. Now, remember, before there'd been no savings. They kept sending it to El Salvador. All of a sudden, they were all saving. So I personally went to one of the, the monthly meetings and I asked them, so how come you guys are saving? And they turned over to Javier and Maria and said, well, if they can buy a house, we can buy a house. And it was done of, we'll never make that mistake. And within 18 months, all of the other families in that group owned homes in the United States, something that none of them thought could ever be done. But because that one outlier family, what we would call a positive deviant, because they took a risk, because they did figure out how to solve it, it changed the dynamic within that entire grouping. So then we're over there, well, that's really good. All of a sudden, you know, there is this, this sense of mutuality. And then those families said, well, the other thing is that other people in our refugee community, because they talk to other people besides this group of five or six, they're all thinking they can buy houses and some of them are starting to buy homes. And I, like, well, so then there's a ripple effect. So it wasn't just that person, you know, that personal connection that you had actually having a role model that actually shows a solution coming from the people themselves has a bigger impact. And they said, yes, that's really true. So that was in 2001, 2002, about 15 or 16 years later. Okay, this, this, is, this is quite a bit later. I did a presentation at Stanford University and I told, told the story of Javier and Maria. And afterwards, you know how people come up to you after a speech or something and they want to talk to you. Well, this young man came up to me and he says, so, you know, my family's from El Salvador and my mother heard about your family's buying homes. So we bought a house and it's the equity from that house that I'm using to get through Stanford. So that means that that ripple effect did happen and that that solution that they came up with was generational. And that's what we want. Those are both great stories for different reasons. But it's that second one is so powerful because it points to kind of the traditional immigrant experience in the United States of self-help being the basis for intergenerational mobility and not outside intervention being the basis. Now, you, you do have to have some outside interventions. You have to have a guarantee of justice. You have to have security. People need security and their ownership of things. And so you can't just have the Wild West. But that story of the young man going through Stanford based out of the accumulated capital that the family had built up through the work of the entire community, that's an amazing and powerful story and example. On the first story, the thing that's really stood out to me about that story is that you had to kind of go through three times of redirecting the conversation before the client could really identify their own resource. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of other people. Like stress really makes us stupid. It makes us forget what we already know. And then we're just flailing around. We're the person who's drowning in the lake because we're panicked by what's going on around us, what's happening to us. And I remember taking a project management course one time where the instructor said, you always have to ask when you're starting a new project, you've given an assignment by your boss to do something. You have to ask your boss three times if there's anything else that you need to know before you start, because your boss won't take you seriously until you ask the third time. And then they'll really sit back and reflect on, well, now there are these other elements that we haven't talked about yet. And kind of that process of slowing people down enough 
so that they're able to think, I think is such an underappreciated aspect of every life, but especially among the poor who are under enormous stress all the time. It's always a crisis when you're living on a thin margin. And that work that you've done with people to help them slow down and think and consider what's actually available to them is a really critical insight, I think, in in poverty reduction programming. Well, that's in programming. Underlying kind of some of what you're saying is it relates to something I've been teaching in my class at Princeton. They have been reviewing some of the articles that talk about stress and scarcity. And, you know, this is from one of the professors at Princeton also. And what was really kind of fascinating is that in that paper, it's Poverty Interrupted by Ideas 42, that they say that this stress and the scarcity that families live under leads to tunnel vision, basically less self-control, all of these kind of terrible insights that essentially they say that their IQ drops by 13 points. And so all of a sudden you become dumber. And that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. When rich people go through stress, and they do, there could be a divorce, there could be, I don't know, just watching something on Dateline about this criminal, and he was very rich. They also are really stressed, and not necessarily scarcity, but under stress, yes, you basically then focus on something. And so when rich people come under stress, then they have to kind of focus on something. It's called focusing. When poor people, you know, got beat up or something like that, and they have to focus on it, they call it tunnel vision and drop an IQ. Let me push back on that a little bit. I mean, I think the difference is that when rich people, rich people are just as dumb under stress as poor people are. They just have more margin to make mistakes. Right. It's not as if there's some intrinsic difference between rich and poor that poor people are dumber than rich people. They're, they're all on the bell curve of intelligence somewhere. It's that stress, say a rich person going through a divorce, they lose all perspective on what, what the actual outcome is that they would like to see, which is a reasonably civil end to uh, the marriage. And instead, they, they argue over who gets the China and fight and spend thousands of dollars on attorney's fees that are completely unnecessary. That's how their stupidity gets expressed. So but remember, the distinction I'm trying to make is that in Ideas 42 and in, in the discussion in my class, because rich people go through that same kind of thing, they also, you know, get tunnel vision or whatever. It does not then classify the entire, you know, population of rich as having a drop in IQ overall. Mm-hmm. While what this professor is basically putting out is that because, quote, these people are all living all, living under stress and scarcity, mm-hmm. therefore their IQ as a whole, that's the implication, their IQ drops. So the dilemma is if you're part of that and your IQ actually gets accentuated because you're very focused on how to deal with this crazy person or whatever the situation is or how to pay for your car, rather than recognizing that you're dealing with a supposition by outsiders that somehow or other you can't make that decision. Rich people, it'll be taken on an individual basis. Okay, well, they're under stress or whatever, but all rich people then aren't classified as well. You all have lower IQ. And so it is this presumption about people that I grew up with that really drives me nuts. I just see a lot of really not very smart rich people then, I guess, because I do see the same 
effect yeah. going on of people dropping from 100 IQ down to a 78 IQ because they're mad or they've got some <laughs> sort of a problem. That, I think, is a universal for human beings. But as with every human problem, when you don't have any backstop, the consequences for that problem get worse. It's like a rich person makes a mistake and maybe they lose $1,000 or they lose $10,000, but it's, it's not going to wind them up necessarily out on the street or it's not going to destroy their entire life and their children's lives. A poor person, it does become a question of survival when those things happen. Sure. And, you yeah. know, like in a crisis when my sister actually would get beat up, she needed outside help. Yeah. You know, when a rich person gets beat up, they go to a therapist. They need yeah. outside help, you know. Yeah. So, again, there isn't that big of a difference of people under yeah. stress and yeah. the need for outside assistance. But for rich people, they basically have the money and say, well, if I don't like you as my therapist, I'll go get another one. For poor folks, all they have is whatever we decide to present to them because they don't have the dollars to then go make the right choices. And so what I'm pushing for is don't presume this kind of drop in IQ for anybody who's right. low income just because they face scarcity. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I want to go back to your, your positive deviancy point because I think that mm -hmm. needs to be drawn out a little bit. Define positive deviancy and how we can go about encouraging the development of positive deviancy. What's interesting is positive deviance is an existing behavior, right? So that's what, you know, a lot of behaviors that have studied this whole thing came to realize that within any grouping of people, even though it looks like the majority are kind of in lockstep, they're kind of doing all the same thing, that with almost any grouping, there tends to be somebody who deviates. And some, it might be within a group of young kids, they decide to deviate to a gang. So it could be negative deviance given society views, but that there are also positive deviance. And it was interesting when I was growing up with my mother in, in these neighborhoods, my mother was very aware of it. The terminology wasn't there, but she was really aware of what other people like her did. And, you know, when you're talking about the prisoners and whatever, we also knew it was only about 5% of the families in the neighborhood that, that, that really had those kinds of problems. The vast majority get ignored. And the vast majority is what she was looking at. You know, if I even came close to that 5% of the kids getting in trouble, we would actually move to a new neighborhood. But she was then looking for other people like her that had deviated positively. What was their network? What did they do? Whatever. And says, oh, so-and-so, you know, Gloria's doing this and, you know, we should try to do something like that or somebody got in college and I think maybe we could do this. And so that issue of positive demons just exists. It isn't a matter of even us necessarily being what really gets it going or, or whatever. It is that, it, that we don't recognize it. We keep thinking we have to be the deviant, you know, we have to create it. There are times when we can do that. But what I don't want to do is say that somehow or other it's dependent on outsiders. No, it, it happens within people. So what happens is that when there is a positive deviant type of behavior, which was Javier and Maria. So all of a sudden, then her other cohort of friends in our grouping recognized, oh, we can do that too. And with Javier and Maria is like, we can do that and not hire that real estate agent. And so we're not going to be in as big of trouble, right? So there were lessons learned when something goes wrong too. And rich people, you know, and I'm not talking just rich people, a lot of us, middle class, you know, we, we know that we learn when we make mistakes and we're allowed to do that. We're not classified as 
somehow lower IQ or whatever. No, because we've got we've got the bandwidth, we've got the resources, we've got we can withstand our own mistakes, right? Yes, you know, but I don't want it to imply like that either. What I think is really amazing with the people I grew up with, and now I'm working in Liberia, is that they have nothing. I mean, in Liberia, there was nothing. You know, it's kind of like after Ebola, it was like COVID that some of our communities are going through. And out of that, they are making lives. The economy, 90% of the economy is informal, which they formed, right? It wasn't corporations. It wasn't the government's dysfunctional. They formed. Now, so, you know, if you think about how my mother survived and how all my friends survived and people in Liberia survived after all this, there is no way of feeling sorry for them that, oh, they don't have this or they don't have that. You know, we need to admire the fact that most of us that are privileged, if we were thrown into that situation, may not survive. Yeah, no, we so, can survive it. I agree. And I, the way I put this, Mauricio, is that people are natural problem solvers. We do it naturally. We all do yes. it naturally. Every single day of our lives, every moment yeah. of our lives, we're solving a problem. They're uh, just in a different circumstance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it doesn't mean that decision-making should be taken away from them. But yes, they do need, quote, help. They need support for their decisions. That's what my whole project is about, right. is let's start where they are. They're not dumb. Their IQ is not lower. Yes, there's a different circumstance of scarcity. And so therefore, let's make sure that when they actually try to address something, we can actually be there to support them. We're kind of like the rich uncle <laughs> that might be around for some of these kids. Right. So talk a little bit about the FII and, and your international project as well. But I mean, how do you go about helping to make that self-help and self-starting and problem-solving visible within the community? Because that's my understanding of what you do, actually, is helping to lift up these examples and then helping people find ways of networking with one another right. around solutions. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, like I said, the, the original project, Jerry Brown was the one that helped me start it. He was mayor of Oakland at the time. And it was started as a, a learning project, which meant that we needed to, first of all, and this is more design thinking, which is, you know, empathy is really understanding who the audience is. So you know, who are you trying to understand? What is the audience of, of those that you're trying to understand what their situation is? And what we decided to do was then set up an online journaling system. Jerry helped me get the money to basically put a journaling system that I had developed about seeing people's lives on a monthly basis. Well, what do they do to survive? I knew what my mother did. I knew what our closest friends did. But I had been already working in social services for almost 20 years. And seeing that if I wouldn't bring my family through my own services to knowing my friends and neighbors, well, was that an anomaly? Was my experience with these families and what we did to help each other, was that an anomaly? So I started collecting data on a monthly basis and using existing technology, and this is 2001, and the families would journal every month. And then we start looking for patterns. So essentially, technology today helps us to do all this. You see it in presidential campaigns. They're surveying constantly and trying to see what the patterns are. So it wasn't anything novel. But it was something of in a quote anti-poverty work or social mobility work that we somehow or other in the social sector do not use. We do not use ongoing data. 
where businesses do use that and technology allows for it. So what was interesting is that the families, they say, well, are they going to really tell you? And, and what ends up happening is we underestimate people so much. It's like, of course, they were willing to tell us. But the other thing is like, well, but it's going to take their time. And I said, yeah, it's going to take their time to tell us what their income was, what their kids are doing. And so I used to hire outside evaluators to go interview these families. And it would cost me 50 to $75 an hour for the interviewer and $150 for their supervisor and all the administrative costs and whatever. So I said, well, instead, if the families are the experts and they're willing to give us the data that we need, and we'll verify it every few months, then I'll pay them. And it turned out a reasonable wage for the families to be consultants was about $25, $30 an hour. So mm-hmm. I said, okay, if it's taking their time to have a meeting so I can understand what's happening and for them to journal, then I'll pay them for their time. They then will be the consultants. And when dealing with families at a peer level, that they're the experts and we're going to learn from them. And that's what Jerry Brown basically was. Well, yeah, I'm really curious. What can we learn from the families? Then we should be paying them and we should pay these families whenever we take their time. And a lot of our programs take a lot of their time. So in that, we start seeing patterns of, quote, people helping one another in mutuality and positive deviance. What we start seeing is actually that they had experts already that they knew those experts, however, didn't have access to dollars, but my staff did. You know, so families make the best choices that they can, sort of like that woman calling us for the legal aid number or something. But now she doesn't have to. She, you know, other people can go to her. So what was happening that was hidden is that in these communities, they were always turning to one another, just like my mother when I was growing up. And that's all hidden because our sector keeps looking for neediness. You know, when does it make it that they need me as a professional, when they need my services? Because if I can show neediness, then the funders will give me money. So if I can make the funders feel really guilty, and that's why I was fighting that little bit of a stereotype that, you know, they're poor and, you know, it's very different. It's like, no, our sector works on pity of people that we really should honor because most of us could not survive (laughs) in that kind of situation. So essentially then what FI was, we start learning from the data that, yeah, everything that I grew up with and and our friends grew up with, uh, people do help each other. They can come up with ideas. They do have positive deviance. And those ideas can scale if they didn't deal so much money scarcity or social network scarcity. I mean, you and I, we'll use our networks and we'll use our money to make, you know, our lives better, our kids' lives better and whatever. So that the scarcity is not intelligence. The scarcity is really the dollars and the social connections, but that they need to lead that. And so after a while, it was, well, then we're going to sell this idea. And we start telling, you know, people in foundations and government and whatever. And what we learned is that it threatens a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. It threatens a lot of power, a lot of position. People feel much better by being the savior. And it is very hard to be the savior if you acknowledge that these families are pretty amazing. And this whole savior quality, I mean, we admire that in the United States. I think the United States is very charitable. But boy, that undermines the community that it wants to help. So that's sort of what FI has been kind of struggling with is that on the one hand, we engage and we see all this, but we have not been able to get resources or get and now FII is, I think, getting to the point that actually they and give directly and what I'm doing internationally, 
it is much more acceptable now to get money directly to families. I can tell you when I started this or even 10, 15 years into it, they're over there. No, you know, they'll use it for alcohol and drugs. And, you know, there's no way we should give them money. Well, finally, it's taken about 20, 30 years to prove that. No, they probably can make the best decisions. Everybody doesn't agree with that, like scarcity. But the fact is, give directly, FII, internationally, the World Food Program, they now have realized that giving money directly allows these families to make choices. Actually, we can learn from that. That's the progress we made. The progress we have not made is to change the stereotype. That ultimately was what ha- that is what has to happen. Right. No, that's that's interesting. It sounds like a bit of an advertisement for universal basic income. Well, yes and no, because universal basic income, if it was universal, in other words, there wasn't distinction of we're doing this as charity for poor people, that that would be fine. But the fact is that even the the experiment being done in Stockton is being done for poor people. And so it doesn't change the the stereotype. So we're doing this because poor people, you know, it's just money and we go have to help them. It's not. And so my work now around COVID (laughs) is really that, you know, these, quote, people are producers, right? They create jobs. They help each other. They train each other. You know, my the construction person that's going to that's been fixing my house and the Airbnb upstairs. Basically, you know, he's from the the low-income area and he comes in with a crew of three or four, which are either a cousin and three friends, and he trains them, right? No paying for training programs or whatever. It's on-the-job training. They're earning money and they're doing this work. So that population not only creates its own jobs, but employs its people. Mm You saw this in the Jewish community. You've seen this historically, the black townships. This has gone on for ages. We just don't recognize it and we don't honor it. And we keep thinking that there's something wrong with them. Somehow or other, that perspective, when you go into Liberia, where the corporations have left, the government's dysfunctional. And then I start doing comparisons to what's happening with COVID. If you don't mind moving into that. No, let's talk about that. I want to hear about what your observations are on the COVID epidemic. Yeah. So there were so many parallels to what what I was experiencing in Liberia. The reason we went into Liberia is that with corporations not being able to produce jobs and with the government dysfunctional and the NGOs, the, the nonprofits there being pretty dysfunctional also, that the families have had to just create their own economy. It's an informal economy, cash-based they're selling stuff, helping each other, providing services to each other. You know, now there's phone cards and money transfers and, and whatever. And that all is an economy that they had built. What I was listening on the news is at one point, they interviewed the mayor of Seattle. And the mayor of Seattle was saying, with this happening, Seattle's going to lose a million jobs. And that of those jobs, then a huge number is going to be our lowest income population. And so then, you know, what are they going to do? Well, I know what they do. I remember this. And what we do is we find any way to make some money. We go find some kind of demand for something or we'll go to the flea market or, you know, we'll start setting empanadas or, you know, it's like you start becoming very entrepreneurial. And that is actually what is going to happen as soon as they let us out of our houses. And even without that, I, I know I just saw a landscaper out there trying to do something. So I start seeing parallels of the corporations right now. It's going to take them a while to really get going. And they're using up a lot of the money, but, you know, it's going to take them a while. 
government right now is really having a really difficult time. And so people are going to have to turn to one another. And that's the thing that's fascinating. Like Liberia, all of a sudden, what I'm seeing on the Nextdoor app in our neighborhood, which is all our neighbors kind of in a certain area talking with another, we're worried about our gardener, the gardener that does. We're worried about the cleaning people. We're worried about the little mom and pop restaurants. Are they going to stay in business so that when we come out of this, that they're still around? And what I know when I walk into these little restaurants is that the dishwashers are all, you know, immigrants or some Latino that's washing the dishes, the waiters and the waitresses or students that are trying to get their first years through college. I see the laborers that, you know, work with Javier, who's the guy that does my construction, that those people actually, their first jobs and a lot of their work experience comes from these mom and pop businesses. The big businesses are hard to break into. They don't create the most jobs, but these mom and pop enterprises really do. And as I start looking at the regulations, I sit on a foundation board that runs a bank and talking to the staff there and watching the news, what became really clear is that the bailout programs that are being set up will never reach these entrepreneurs and therefore will not recreate and rehire the janitors and dishwashers and and laborers of these micro businesses, which are the biggest employers of the most vulnerable populations. But it's spoken of as, well, we're helping small businesses. Well, you know, what the bank staff basically says is the first thing the banks are doing is that we're going to lend to our existing customers. Customers, sure. Yeah, because, you know, we don't want them to default on loans we already have. Then we're going to look for the next best tier of new customers that will be good long-term customers. The other thing is it takes too much administrative cost to give loans under $10,000, even under $15,000. And these micro businesses cannot take loans bigger than that. Yeah. They just can't afford it. And so for a lot of reasons, that money will never reach these micro businesses. So I'm talking to the mayor in Oakland, and she recognized this, and they did some research, and 1,100 businesses came up, popped up, these mom-and-pop businesses, that they have access to nothing. (laughs) So it's like, well, shouldn't we do that? So my work is really going to be to work with the mayor here and set up essentially that positive deviance model that what we have to do is very easily reach out to those businesses. The city knows we have, we're getting databases on all these businesses, identify them and tell them, look at what we know from what happened. The mayor tried this once already is that most of you do not want to take on debt and will not take on more debt, not without some equity, some capitalization. Most of us will not start a business just on debt. We have to have some capital to make those payments, to take the risks that, that we have to have. And so essentially what my work now, similar to Liberia, is we are actually working on doing micro equity grants. So these will be investments into these businesses. And that if you know, you're a father of a kid that's starting a business, you will basically give them micro equity investment. That's what they'll get started. Then you might ask them to take out a loan on Kiva or, or something else or Kickstarter. The experiment now is really not only do it in Liberia and in, we're going to Colombia and Mexico and the Philippines, but actually in the U.S. And we're starting in Oakland. We're getting the databases right now. We will look at, we have an online data system, which is what FI has had, but we're starting a more public one. And we will be able to not only get the businesses to get some funds from us and from the funds that we're able to raise, they will be able to take out loans. Loans are available. Although there's very few that will give that small of a loan, probably Kiva and and maybe a a CDFI or something. Most of the even community banks won't do it. 
but we can give the grants. And then we're going to have them online and we're going to ask all their customers and their distributors to also invest. So there is a history of DPOs, direct public offerings, which is where any of us can actually be an investor in a business. They say that that's been around for a long time, but I've seen on Nextdoor app that a lot of us want to invest in the mom and pop so it doesn't, it doesn't go away and we want them to rehire the dishwasher and whatever. So the effort that we're doing right now is trying to show this population creates jobs. They're the ones that hire the most vulnerable. We have to make sure they're okay. We have to bring and, and actually develop systems to invest in those, those types of entrepreneurship and resourcefulness. That's amazing. Trying to bring these recovery programs down to a scale that a small organization can actually use, small business, really small business can use, is a huge challenge. Government likes to give out big checks because they're easy. You have fewer of them to manage once you've given them out. And it's a constant battle. And that's something we really need to give some thought to, I think, is the micro side of this, because it does, so many people do have their employment through these very small businesses, and they're not big enough to show up on government's radar. Now, that can be a blessing or a curse, depending on the service. Actually, that's true. <laughs> so, but I'm really intrigued. I want to learn more about that effort because it's, it's just not something that has kind of emerged in the big policy discussion that's going on at the federal level. Um, I'm almost, like I said, I'm almost afraid to raise it because I don't want to mess up the organic efforts that are underway to address the problem. But you and I should talk about what would be helpful. What are the potentials as Congress considers future rounds of kind of relief legislation that actually would be helpful and could be done in a way that wasn't disruptive of those efforts? So, well, Mauricio, I can't thank you enough for all the time you've given me today. It's such an inspiration to talk with you and to hear both your story as a person and your story as a leader, as now a policy entrepreneur. You're an antidote to discouragement and despair in a very difficult time. So thanks for sharing with us today and looking forward to staying in touch. That'd be wonderful. So thank you, Brent. I always enjoy really talking with you. So let's keep it up. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.